arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. The airport is 45 minutes from two harbours and 10 miles from Avalon. The airport is used for people who own their own planes who travel to the island for a vacation. The airport first opened in 1946, which was commissioned by the Wrigley family. Sam and Queenie are targeted for death. Using resourcefulness and quick thinking, they evade their killers. They escape Catalina and head north. When they finally face the head of this powerful organization, they also face nature's fury. In the final standoff, in the midst of a wild shootout, an unusual turn of events spins everything topsy-turvy. Here's the action-packed final episode of Sam Crud, The Santa Ana Win by Robert P. Fitton. Chapter 16. Queenie was already asleep in bed, and I went out cold in the chair. I woke up just before dawn. I crossed the room and placed my foot on the open window as the cooler ocean air filtered into the hotel room. The Los Angeles lights, distant 26 miles across the water, mesmerized me. At this time of morning, it seemed as if I was now a creature who repeatedly awakened just before dawn. I had concluded that someone in government, or with great power, was attempting to track my every move. Just before noon, I stood in an alcove outside the Nexus Pavilion Hotel. I stared at Al Compton's mugshot. His eyes were intense. Then I panned the boats scattered about the harbor, and I couldn't help thinking how many times Al Compton had been on this island. Was he the conduit for the chips of drugs or jewels to someone who had transported them to Morgan City? Queenie sat at a tiny round table with her white pad and pen, outlining and noting this calamity. My paid cell phone had a tinny ring. How's it going, Woody? Got the cash. Activated the phone, I'm on my way to Chandler. Get as close to Inland Acres as possible when you fill up. We want to divert these clowns if they're tracking me like I think they are. I'll fill up and I'll get the hell out of there. Good man. Just hang loose, Woody. Yo. Hey, Queenie. She looked up and smiled. Woody get his job done? Except for the fill up. Why would the government be after you? These, these guys aren't stupid, Sam. Only someone with government capacity to spy on me. Someone with lots of money who feels threatened. And I know they're not stupid, Queenie. But they also want to believe what they want to believe, which is the basis of setting somebody up. I understand. Make them believe what they want to believe. Yep. Al Compton was killed 18 days ago. It'd be nice if I could get into the Avalon Harbor webcam files before Al Compton was killed. How perfect would it be for Al Compton to pick up goods and then ship them into the system via scans to Morgan City? Sounds diabolical. Disguise the contraband as plumbing parts with a phony bill of lading. That's the key, and that's why I don't think the drop came on the Channel Islands, Queenie. Agreed, but they're not going to just let you pull up in your easy chair and start watching the Avalon Harbor TV. I broke into a smile. You're funnier than Woody when he was over here with me, I said, kissing her forehead. Plus, Woody likes to believe in his own delusions. 
I'd say he's doing alright by you. No question. Now, how do I get to that cam video? She puffed her cheeks and blew out her mouth. I don't know. What about some of the hotel cams? He's shooting in the dark if Compton wasn't the drop-off guy. True. That's a good idea about the hotels. Or a city cam. How are you at talking your way into things? Wait, wait, don't answer that. I know the answer. Shut. Queenie stood and put away her pad. You're asking for trouble, crud. I always do. Queenie stood across the hall with her notepad. When I slipped my gold frame white card to a Mr. Gandell at the panel City Hall office, my thoughts turned to the day I received my own business cards. The Colonel was not happy I had duplicated the colors and the font of the hotel business cards. Today I had scratched off my smartphone number and scrawled in the number just assigned to me on the new phone. Then I showed him Al Compton's mugshot. The bespeckled Gandell crunched his brows. I, I don't know. I've seen him somewhere, but I, something, someone similar, but I can't tell you where. Okay. I'm not sure where or when. He had an unsettled look. Can I view a video of your harbor? Gandalf shook his head. No can do. I would need the permission of someone like that. I was wondering if this guy was drunk. Can you look at the video for Al Compton? I, I just don't have the time. But you may have seen him. Again, Gandell studied my screen. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me know, I said, and I shook his hand. I faced Queenie. Is he sober? If he's not, he should be. Why not look at the cam footage, she said, as we swung toward the open door, displaying the blue water toward the Southland beaches. Regulations. I held her arm once we were on the front steps. But then he may have seen Al Compton before. Why did they kill Compton, she asked. Greed? Maybe he wanted more. Maybe he was all done doing the dirty work. My phone rang. Hello. Sam, it's Woody. Yeah, I gathered. Muck just called me. Someone broke into your apartment last night. Buster heard something around 3 o'clock. Muck let him out and he chased some guy down the stairs. The guy hopped in a jeep driven by somebody else and they left around the hotel service room. Muck thinks the tag number might be on the hotel surveillance video. Don't tell me about surveillance video. What? Never mind. Get Marty involved in that, but don't tell anyone, including Muck, about this phone. I had Woody copy Queenie's new phone number with the same instructions just in case something happened to me or my phone. Muck said he was going to talk to the Colonel about the break-in. Yeah, that's okay. That'll get the Colonel's ass in gear about looking for intruders. Just make sure a shoddy calls if anything else happens. Thanks for the info, Woody. Give me an update later today on Danny. I will. Then his voice became childlike as he needled me. Say hello to Queenie. Take a flying nosedive off the Oceanico Beach Pier, will you, Woody? What happened? asked Queenie, turning over the page in her notebook. Buster stopped someone trying to break in my apartment. They left in a Jeep at 3 a.m. Wonderful, but not unexpected. Let's check the listing of the transport companies here in town. Small van transport. There has to be a record of shipments to Morgan City. By late in the day, we had been into six cubbyhole operations within a five-mile radius. Every one of the business managers checked their bills of lading for Morgan City shipments during the last few months. It was late afternoon when we stumbled onto the next company on a narrow, faded asphalt road up in the brush-covered hills. 
A white van with green lettering was parked alongside of a mustard-colored corrugated steel building's open garage door. Ship anywhere, I said, reading the company name. The phone number was painted over with white spray paint. Hey, said a short tubby guy in a striped tank top. Hey, I said. He kept a stubby cigar between his teeth as he studied Queenie's legs. Who the hell are you? This place doesn't do much business. The strange grin on his unshaven face, he stepped toward us. I asked who you are, Mulberry. Private investigator. He pressed his lips and nodded. Ah, that's what I thought. You mind if we ask you a few questions? Asked Queenie. Are you kidding me? I want you gabonzos out of here. Then, with Beatrice secure in my rear holster, I decided to find out just what was going on on this armpit of a business. We want to know about the shipments to Morgan City. His dark eyes opened so there was more white than dark. His mouth looked stuck between breathing and speaking. He backed up and then ran into the garage. I removed Beatrice and assumed a firing position. Get against the building, Queenie, I said, guiding her to the front. Then I slid along the exterior. The man's voice echoed from inside. I'm armed and I'll take you down. I motioned to Queenie with my index finger over my lips. When I didn't hear him, I picked up a good-sized rock and pegged it at high speed onto the side window, producing a large crack. Still, he did not come out. Go around the back of the building, Queenie. No, I'm staying with you. I flashed my teeth and ran around the garage corner with Beatrice extended. The tubby man was inside the incandescent glow of an inner office and had a landline phone to his ear. To his right was the blue floor safe that looked as if it had been deposited cockeyed on the cement. I ran to the empty shelves along the wall, then raced forward and kicked open the wood door. I aimed at the phone on the desk and blew it apart in one shot. The guy was thrown back against the wall. I rushed him and checked for a weapon and then lifted him up by his tank top. Who are you? Jack. Jack shit. You sent the boxes to Morgan City, Jack. Jack's lips quivered. Listen, buddy, get the hell out of here. They'll kill you, don't you understand? Morgan City, Jack. Screw you. Here's the way I figure it, Jack. I waved the long barrel of my 44 in front of his face. We're two miles up in the mountains here on Catalina, isolated. Providing who you are talking to on the phone doesn't send a hit squad up here, I frankly don't give a damn what they do. I'll waste your ass, Jack. And no one will find you for weeks like Al Compton. You, you knew Al Compton, Jack, said Queenie. Jack just stared at us. Okay, where are the bills of lading from Morgan City? Are they in the safe? Jack's eyes opened wide again. I don't know what you're talking about. Open the safe. Jack shook his head. I'm going to count to five, but I'll give you options, Jack. Open the safe. You have five seconds. One, I said in a voice like the colonel, barking out orders at the hotel. Jack rubbed his chin. Two, listen, I'm a dead man if I tell you anything or if I open that safe. Did you know Al Compton? I asked. No, sir, said Jack in a shaky voice. He worked for a company called Seahorse Industries. You shipped boxes in your truck to a warehouse in Morgan City, didn't you, Jack? Again, he opened his eyes wide. What was the bill of lading's point of origin? I pointed the gun to his forehead. Seahorse Industries, Rostow, Texas, but that was bogus. What was in the boxes? I don't ask questions. How did you get the boxes? asked Queenie. Jack closed his eyes. Then he pointed upward. 
plane? Jack opened his eyes and nodded. Parachute? Yeah, they drop at night. I am so screwed telling you this. Who are you on the phone with? Secretary. I don't know where the hell she is, and I wanted to talk with Addy. Who's he? I wanted to know. They don't tell you that shit. He's part of the operation. Know anybody named Roy? No. What about Repetta? Jack squinted and again rubbed his chin. Don't, don't go there. Three? I don't know any Repetta. And Roy? Roy's a mean motherfucker. Yeah, I'm aware of that. Was Roy on this island? I asked. How did they get the stuff in here? It was a parachute, but Roy's parachute. He had six to ten boxes strapped to him. He, he's good. He can land directly in the clear at about 500 yards right up the road. And you drive to Morgan City? No, Roy did. I went with him, but, but we didn't list anything. Just the vehicle under my name. Which is? John B. Stockman. Got a record, John? Asked Queenie. Better yet, have you been behind bars at Escobedo? No. Do you know Leonard Constantini? I asked. Oh, I met him years ago. I'm way down the chain, Mulberry. How did you get into this? I asked. Money. They paid me five grand to facilitate the shipment. The shipment of what? They ain't gonna tell me that. Listen, you better get out of here right now. Why? Is somebody on the way over here? I asked. Yeah. Open the damn safe, I yelled. I can't. I don't have the combination. Did that safe come down here from Morgan City? Just showed up here a few days ago. That's all I know. I fanned Beatrice away from Jack and blew the tumbler combination apart. The thick metal door slowly moved open. Get a bag, Jack, and put the entire contents of that safe in the bag. With my gun trained on Jack, he reached into a side closet and pulled out a fresh trash bag. Then he squatted down and began transferring the safe contents into the bag. He stepped back with the bag still on the floor. Word will get back to Addy, he said Jack. We're all dead meat. Who is Addy? Boss man. You're coming with us, Jack. Get us off the island. They know the friggin' van. Pick up that bag and let's get the hell out of here. I had Jack show us the clearing about a mile up the road, the site of a former building where Roy performed his parachute trick. I gripped the bag tightly as I argued with Jack about taking a road along the mountain which was wider than the trail Woody had driven me in the cart. From this vantage point, I could not yet see Avalon and only occasional stretches of the ocean. Who killed Al Compton, Jack? I can't tell you that one, pal. You can point that cannon at me, but I just don't friggin' know. Where was he killed? Jack smiled. Jack, come on, man. There was a big meeting right up at the shop. Addy ordered me into town until they called for me. Who came to that meeting? Jack shook his head. I don't know, but I wasn't allowed to come back to the shop until morning. What else, Jack? I asked loudly. I think Compton was killed at that meeting because there was blood on the cement. Any blood still there? Gone. About a week later, gone. They use acid. Why was Addy at this meeting? Unknown. I leaned in the open window frame as the wind blew against my sweaty face, high above the ocean in the distance. Queenie's hand appeared on mine and I covered her hand as I smiled. Getting to the small airport we had seen earlier in the day would provide a rapid exit from Catalina. Then I began thinking about leaving the island on a direct flight. But I wasn't going to have a lengthy discussion with Jack about the airport. I wondered why Naki had been spotted in Morgan City less than two days ago. 
Al Compton was brought or called to a meeting on Catalina Island in Jack's shop, and somebody slit Al Compton's throat. Somebody was so upset with Al Compton, they got rid of him. They took him by boat to Oceanico Beach, where they somehow were going to bring his body back to the barn in Inland Acres. If my theory went forward, they were burying computer chips or something else under Al Compton. And it was all in the system, thanks to Roy traveling to the mainland and then to Morgan City. All the shipments were typed on fake bills of lading listed as Texas. What ferry did you take, Jack? Why, you leaving by ferry? asked Jack. Then he looked across the mountain road. Santa Barbara. But I'd stay the hell out of Morgan City, Mulberry. You'll never get out alive. Because of Naki. Oh, you know it all, don't you? Naki will kill you just soon as look at you. I realized we really should be on an air flight once we figured out that in Avalon. As Queenie put her arm around me, a bullet punched through the rear glass window. I pushed her down in the vinyl seat. I told you, I told you, yelled Jack as he accelerated along the mountain cliff. The outline of a vehicle appeared in the dusty sunshine as the VN rocked from side to side. Jack appeared to be gaining on the vehicle with several shots, sounding like handguns unloaded on the van. I noticed several punctures in the windshield. To my right was a substantial drop toward Jack's shop hundreds of feet below. Jack, his hands gripped on the wheel, veered around the mountain. I whispered to Queenie, We're going to have to leap out toward the mountain. Before that car gets closer, hold on to me. Before she could answer, another shot hit the fender. I tied the trash bag to my belt and then positioned Queenie behind me. I flipped the door handle as we emerged on a straightaway ahead. Jack had slowed at the turn and we rolled across the dirt. Queenie held on as I hit the dirt and shrubs. I began counting to myself. It took the small Subaru behind us 11 seconds to round the bend. That turn allowed us the cover we needed. After the Subaru passed, we scrambled up a few dozen yards where we could get a better view of the ocean in Avalon. My elbows and cheeks were bruised, but Queenie had a cut on her right ear. I wiped it with my shirt. The wind blew up the mountain as I pressed my jersey against the wound and held it in place for half a minute. Then I wiped my bloody chin. Before we go anywhere, we need to see what was in that blue safe, said Queenie. When I turned, I saw Jack's white van chugging up the dirt road over a mile away, but the Subaru was closing in. He's a dead man, I said. You all right, Queenie? Shoulder hurts. Can you move it? Yeah, it's just bruised. She pointed across the island to the edge of the airport just over the distant mountain peaks landing strip. I was already considering that, flying to Morgan City. Would Mac the Knife Naki up there? There are answers in Morgan City, Queenie. We need the complete picture before we bring this forward. To whom? Well, not the FBI, and I don't trust Bender. Maybe your news report, if we survive. As she spoke, a plume of white smoke rose north of the city. The Subaru had stopped on the distant hill, but Jack and the van had careened over the edge. Queenie and I slowly held on to each other. She spoke as we watched the crash. If we'd stayed in that van, she said, we'd be most assuredly dead. I had already found dozens of bills of lading for the shipments from 333 Western Drive, Rostow, Texas, bound for Richmond Express in Rio Martos. That route had been bogus. It was Roy who drove to the Santa Barbara Ferry and then on to Morgan City. Then the phony destination was inserted with the packages left Morgan City for Rio Martos. I pulled out a rolled up parcel from the bag while we sat on the top of the hill overlooking the road below. 
I removed the elastics from a rolled up blue architect's plan and Queenie and I spread open the actual blueprint in the sunshine. The drawings clearly showed every structural detail of the units at Inland Acres. Why keep a blueprint of that hole in the wall office on Catalina? asked Queenie. I kept staring at the drawing. Because I think that blue safe was moved probably from Morgan City. But something's not right here. What do you mean, Sam? she asked. I pointed to an arrangement of narrow shelves along the 2x8 studs. There's no need for shelves between the supports. Could be just supports. But they've specified shelves behind the walls. Plaster or sheetrock. I looked up from Queenie. Then I think they stashed this contraband behind the walls in people's homes. Who would ever look there? Nobody, if that's what you're saying is true, Sam. I pull out the cell phone and call Woody. Two rings and Woody answered. I was just going to call you, Sam. Why? I asked. Sam, that guy Perez, Rio Martos, he's missing. Been missing for four days. He must be dead. He is dead, Woody. These people play for keeps. Listen. I think Al Compton broke into the safe at the Morgan City warehouse. That's what got him in trouble. No. Yes, and I believe that they moved the safe up there to Catalina, a turnaround steel building in the mountains. Queenie and I have the contents of what's left in that safe. Wow. What did Compton find in that safe? More than what I just found. Al Compton's knowledge was on a need-to-know basis. For some reason, he stuck his nose into more. What they're doing, Woody, is storing the contraband behind the walls at Inland Acres. There are shelves built into the stud system behind the sheetrock. But you don't know what's stored there. I have no idea. They must funnel it out as needed. It's embedded in the trucking system and now physically hidden in the walls at Inland Acres. Look, we have these copies of bills relating for Richmond Express, supposedly originating in Texas. Maybe Compton was working with somebody said Woody. That's a great point, Woody, but Al Compton never made it off Catalina. He was called to a meeting on Catalina where they killed him in that building in the mountains. That's what the argument at the Munson was all about. Listen, Woody, we're flying to Morgan City. I want one more look at that warehouse and make a trip to City Hall to get records. Then we head to Chandler. Sam, I don't want to tell you how to do your business, but if any of them are still up there, they'll kill you on sight. They already think we're dead, Woody. We leaped out of a van on a mountain road on Catalina. Then the van was forced off the road several miles away. Damn! Be ready, Woody. One more thing. Well, the weasel has info, but he says he'll only talk to you. What kind of info? He won't say. I'll talk to him later, Woody. One more thing. The colonel's all pissed off about you being away and is called Harbinger. Really? Harbinger told the colonel to stop pestering him. Queenie and I both laughed. Tell the colonel I'll be back soon. Ha! said Woody. And did the call as Queenie looked up with glazed eyes. That man Perez from the Munson. Just another death. He did nothing wrong. Sure he did. He witnessed two of the players in this mess confronting another participant who was murdered shortly thereafter. That Munson confrontation led to Al Compton being told to go to that meeting on Catalina. His death now. Chapter 17 Late afternoon at the tiny Avalon airport, Queenie and I stood outside next to a huge irregular map of the island. We were still affected by the wind as we followed the map to our present location on the far side of Catalina. The tiny white terminal, surrounded by small wood pergolas, 
looked more like a small outside plaza than an airport. The 3,000-foot landing strip itself stretched toward rugged terrain and the ocean beyond. As I turned from the asphalt runway, I was stunned when I saw the bushy-haired man in a beige corduroy sport coat. He carried a maroon valise as he stood under a wood-log roof. The wind messed up his fuzzy dark hair, rendering it more scattered than Marty's artist rendition. I nudged Queenie, who understood his identity right away, and we hunkered down behind the pergola just 30 feet away. Our flight would connect to Phoenix and then to Morgan City. The fuzzy-haired guy walked toward a series of small planes in front of a maintenance building that touted the Avalon Airport as the airport in the sky at 1,602 feet. He was met by the muscle-bound Roy. We were close enough to hear everything they said. We'll be in Chandler in 45 minutes, Addie, he said clearly. Addie, we whispered both at the same time. Those are private planes. They're going to Inland Acres, Sam, added Queenie. Roy is a cold-blooded killer, I said in a low voice. Can't Mike fly any faster, Roy? Asked Addie in a raspy voice. Shut up, Addie, said Roy as he turned. I leaned closer to Queenie's ear. Mike might be the other guy sketched by Marty's artist, but that's just a guess. With the broad-shouldered Roy in the private plane area, my heart pounded both from fatigue and abject fear. Bet they were all in the Subaru, I whispered to Queenie. I leaned against the wall and texted Woody's phone. 7X4071, Woody, the bushy-haired guy, Addy, is at the little Avalon airport, and Makis, or Mike, is flying them to Chandler. Roy is with Addy. Roy parachuted into the mountains on Catalina with the goods, and I think Mike was flying the aircraft. Woodrow surfer guy, from where? 7X4071. Don't know. Woodrow surfer guy. You want me in Chandler? 7X4071. Yes, sir. Get going, Woody, and book a room in Chandler. Bring Bad if he's available. Woodrow surfer guy. Will do. Addie stood and circled around the blue and white plane. So the big three are going to Chandler, said Queenie. Woody will watch them closely. Where's Naki? I asked, studying Addie as he backtracked under the canopy. We remained behind the pergola. Maybe we should call the police, Sam. I shook my head. Not yet. We need to catch these guys with the goods. I don't trust the police and the FBI doesn't want us involved in the case. Addie folded the paper and walked toward the window. Somebody must have signaled him because he showed papers to a clerk and walked toward the small planes. We inched forward as he neared a red and white plane, slightly larger than the smallest surrounding aircraft. How about going to Chandler instead, said Queenie. Not yet. I have to check Morgan City again, about Al Compton's wife and some other stuff. It won't take long, Queenie, then we'll go to Chandler. I didn't mind the long, somewhat rough flight, even though we had to fly to Phoenix in order to backtrack to Morgan City. During the flight over LA and into Arizona, Woody was on the ground below us. When we landed in Phoenix, he verified that Addie, the bushy-haired man, had landed in Chandler with the short gray-haired man I assumed was Mike the pilot. Woody then described a short, muscular beast who had to be Roy. They left in a green Audi, driven by Becky Lang. Are you sure that's her, Woody? I asked on the cell phone. It's her. I'd recognize those legs anywhere. We'll follow them. You got it, Chief. We were still in Phoenix when Woody texted that the two men and Lang 
drove the Audi onto the 91 freeway and then took the 215 south. The Audi had passed through the gates at Inland Acres while we still waited in the connecting plane to Morgan City. Somebody met them in the shadows at the clubhouse. Before we were airborne, Woody had secured two rooms in a five-story motel called the Empire outside of Chandler. We landed late with no more texts from Woody during the flight to Morgan City. Walking through the terminal, I kept thinking Naki could be almost anywhere. I paid cash to the taxi driver, and then we entered the Northern Alpine Motel. Queenie took a bath and told me the next morning that when she exited the bathroom in a Rams football shirt that she had bought in Avalon, I was snoring on the far side of the bed. She shut off the light and followed me into dreamland. 8.22 a.m. In the morning, we left an alcove breakfast place with a smorgasbord of sausage, bacon, and several omelets, pancakes, pastries, and gourmet coffee. Our next stop was the city hall. Queenie, notebook in hand, looked up with glazed eyes before we started up the city hall staircase. We scurried up the stairs. We entered an aging corridor and walked toward the hall of records at the end. Queenie looked up at me as if she were going to sucker punch me. By the way, you snore. I continued to look ahead. By the way, you do too. Never mind. She broke into laughter as I pulled out the phone and texted Woody. 7X4071, what's the status at Inland, Woody? Woodrow surfer guy. The Audi is parked next to the main sales area. Haven't seen whoever met them by the clubhouse. 7X4071, any sign of Naki? Woodrow surfer guy. Negatory. Still could be up at Morgan City. 7X4071, wonderful. Woodrow surfer guy. Dad can be here later today or tomorrow morning. And Sam, that fire south of town is choking up the air. 7X4071. Maybe they'll all leave. We're at the city hall. Brief me if anything changes. Woodrow surfer guy. Got it. 11.43 a.m. I didn't expect Al Compton's wife to be dead. Three years dead. Cause of death, aspiration pneumonia due to sedation medication. Wasn't sure what that meant. Did she choke to death because of the medication, or was the medication a contributing factor? I was hesitant to attribute Elsa Compton's death to the illegal shipments. When we received the copy of the house ownership, Elsa Compton's signature scrawled the day before she died, changed my assessment, and Queenie agreed. She moved into that new house built by AM Builders, and then she immediately dies. That's crazy. AM Builders, who the heck are they? Asked Queenie, looking around the corner. I know you're checking for Naki. I tell you, he's long gone. How do you know that? Asked Queenie. I know and Beatrice knows, I said, gripping the holster behind my back. But what we do know is that the bushy-haired guy is at Inland Acres. Let's go to the building department. How and why did Al Compton buy a house from AM Builders? Down the hall at the building department, my answer took two and a half minutes. Joe Gardner, the assistant city building inspector, had the ready answer. Ah, uh, Adair and Marcus. I looked at Queenie. Addy. Well, that's significant. Were there the only two entities involved, Joe? Yes, the two guys, said Joe. They came into town about five years ago, basically built a development, then closed their office on Speed Lane in the industrial park, but they're still in town. Where's Speed Lane? asked Queenie. Just out of town, along the side of the river, said Joe. Hold on. He typed something into his computer, then pushed a button. The printer activated, 
and shot out two pieces of paper, which Joe handed to me. 314 Speed Lane. The company was incorporated here in Morgan City. Joe read from the monitor screen. Single family homes, Adair Hadid and Marcus Mogarabi. That could be Mike, I said, looking at Queenie. They moved from Speed Lane to an office in that warehouse on Rockwell, but not for AM Builders. Left Rockwell's the forwarding address. That's where they ended up. Are they actually from here? Asked Queenie. No, no, no. They incorporated here. I don't know where they're from. I met them once. I remember they spoke English without an accent. I nodded and thought I'd ask about the warehouse. What about retroactive components itself? For my time, you're talking 40 years ago. Retroactive components are long gone. Those records are on microfilm. Anyways, I heard through the grapevine the warehouse is empty now. They had plumbing supplies stored in there, next to the bar, which can get wild at night. They employ anybody named Roy? I asked. Don't know. How about Repetta? Asked Queenie. Nope. Joe, thanks, I said. I shook his hand and we quickly left the building. 2.55 p.m. Speed Lane wasn't speedy at all. We walked for two miles near the river, only to find a hundred-yard stretch and then an extended loop out of the city. The dirt-smeared window of the AM Builder's office still had a white cardboard sign printed in black letters for the company. Inside had a cement slab and nothing else, just white walls and a huge paneled white ceiling. Vacant, remarked Queenie, holding her cupped hand to the window glass as she peered inside. And they used that bar payphone once they left this office. The only clue in here, Queenie, is the prints. Unless you have your super-duper private investigator's kit, Sammy. I need to get back in that warehouse. Oh, no. Place another call to Woody on my temporary cell phone. What's going on, Woody? That fire in south of town is falling up the air. You still in one piece, Sam? Yes, we both are, Woody. We're outside the empty office for the company who built Al Compton's house. Listen, take down these two names. Adar Adi Hadid and Makis M-A-K-I-S Mugarbi. M-U-G-H-R-A-B-I. Buy in an oil well? Marcus maybe Mike. AM Builders built Al Compton's house. Business was incorporated in Morgan City. AM, Sam, Addy and Mike. Excellent, Woody. You just earned your pay for the week. You haven't paid me. I rest my case. Listen, pay Kyle for his time out of my account. You take some for yourself. What about Constantini? I can't connect him to anything right now. One more thing, Sam. Yeah, what's that? Bender was over your office badgering Shirley and he was at the hotel talking to the colonel, according to Shorty. He's looking for you and may charge you with interfering with the police investigation. Well, what about the FBI? I asked. Haven't seen him. Want me to call about Danny? Asked Woody. My next request. To find out if Naki is still up here. Ciao, Woody. Queenie pointed to the glass door to her right. Insurance company. Maybe they know something about these guys. We spoke with Marjorie Callis, the insurance company office manager, for only a few minutes. But we got a bundle of information. I first asked about retrograde components because it was painted on the warehouse. The building was insured by a man from Canada until four years ago when someone named Repetta assumed the policy and expanded it. Who is Repetta? I asked. She shook her head. 
Where's Repetta from? asked Queenie. Same address, Canada. Additional information would be confidential. What else? I asked, growing angry at this Repetta. She informed us that it had been several years since the two men from AM Builders were seen in the office and that a Mrs. Elsa Compton answered the single phone at the desk. Compton? Al Compton's wife? I don't know. Elsa was usually reading and taking calls. Marjorie pointed to a photograph on the wall of her own office employees taken out in front. But in the AM office was a woman she called Elsa Compton. The stunning revelation was that short woman with curly hair, Elsa Compton in the photo, was Megan Stola's sister on the day Al Compton was found on the skiff. But the real Mrs. Compton was already dead. Elsa handled the other office too. What other office? asked Queenie. I was still trying to sort out the sister, a.k.a. Elsa Compton. Unit 634, said Marjorie. Now that sounds familiar. That's the number of the guy Norman Sears who set up the call writing system in Chandler. I don't know, said Marjorie. Once we were outside, I faced Queenie. Who knows where Sears is and Al Compton's wife is dead. You saw the certificate yourself, Queenie. This Elsa is another phony. Let's find Unit 634. We started along the numerous bays and shops on Speed Lane. Five minutes later, I extended my hand to keep Queenie back. Unit 634 had furniture and filing cabinets, as well as two side petitions for conferences. We'll have to go to City Hall again. We both cupped our hands and peered inside. Sam, look at the paperweights on the desk. Aqua white seahorses, over a foot high, held down paper stacks. Well, 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 more seahorses. Part of their marketing, I said. How are you going to find Repetta? I'll text Marty. As long as Boom Boom doesn't find out. I turned to Queenie. For a few seconds, I stared into her green eyes. We were both trying to understand the complexity even more than the illegality of this operation. Queenie? Tonight I'm going to make a sweep through that warehouse. And you're betting that blue safe was moved after you were busted by Roy. Yeah, that and maybe other clues. It sounds like they cleaned it out after your last venture up here. Finding a clue, good luck, Sam. Queenie, there are always clues. It's just a matter of finding them. 7.34 p.m. I insisted Queenie stay at the Northern Alpine with the 38. After dinner, I quietly entered Constantine's and sat at a mini-table across the bar. The enveloping blue light made me feel as if it were the middle of the night. I was positioned near the corridor that led to the payphone. To my left, when garages opened to the staircases, the club was half filled with patrons just past 7.30. Making a move across those garages to the stairway would draw attention. I left the bar after finishing the beer and peered along the building in the dim light. I doubted access to the basement would still be open. It might be possible to climb the first floor windows. I didn't think at this point the old building was alarmed. I had nothing to lose when I threw a rock through the window facing the park in the distance. The glass shattered on the far side of the building from Constantine's. I scrambled up the building's base and pulled myself up to the window only a few feet off the ground. After wrapping my hand I swished back the glass and crawled over the cement lip into an empty office. The outside corridor was visible through the open doorway. The last vestige of reflected sunlight covered portions of the old linoleum floor. 
The main card is floor tiles, where I had run away from Roy and his boys, was scraped as if everything in the warehouse was dragged to the outside doors. I ran to the fourth level as the sun flickered down the corridor on each floor. The office marked central was locked. I kicked the aluminum separation bar and the door slammed against the inner wall. I closed it slowly and headed for the back room, flipped on the light switch and spotted the empty space where the blue safe had been at the end of the narrow room. Then I stood for several seconds and panned the office. What was left in the safe in Jack's office on Catalina, now in my possession, was the remnant of more important papers. I quickly rifled through the kitchenette's cabinets and under the counter, and then I moved to the end of the narrow room. A metal desk sat kitty corner in the lime green room, but there was nothing in the drawers or the wood mail slots. Then I heard something behind me, and then came a booming voice. You're a persistent man, Mr. Cried. When I turned, I saw Naki's white teeth and another switchblade summarily open ten feet away from me. His tiny, dark-armed eyes were like those of an animal from the netherworld, and his shaved head gave him a demonic persona. How did you know I was here? Because, fool, you're out in the open on speed lane. Never, never assume you have the upper hand, Mr. Crud. Now I can finish the job. Go ahead, kill me and get it over with. Oh, so brave. He produced a bellowing laugh. Oh, your gun, please. Handle toward me. I removed Beatrice from my back holster and handed the gun to Naki, who took it with his left hand and studied the weapon. Pearl handle, 44 Magnum, very effective. Let me guess, you're going to bring me to the roof and toss me over so your modus operandi of slashing necks won't be exposed. I didn't kill Compton, if that's what you're insinuating. And you, you're very bright, Mr. Crud. You will have appeared to have fallen seven stories to the ground. That will remove you from your investigation of the operation. Now where's the woman? Oceanico Beach. He produced a guttural sound between laughing and grunting. Ha! Doesn't it matter that I'll find her? And I will kill you. Pass slowly by me and retrace your route into the corridor, upon which you will ascend the stairs to the roof. As I walked ahead of Naki, I grew increasingly hostile to him and his so-called operation. You people think you're so smart. We are smart, he said as we reached the door. And arrogant. Shut up, crud. I continued in the corridor. How many people have you killed, Naki? He didn't answer, and I began climbing the stairs. I could almost feel the blade at my back as we reached the second level. What is it you're making money on, Naki? Again, he laughed. Ha! <laughs> Plumbing supplies! Just why were they screaming at Al Compton at the Munson? You're an aggravating bastard, you know that, he said from behind. You brought him over to the meeting on Catalina, Addie's meeting. You're too smart for your own good. We thought you were dead. Then you had Roy slash Al Compton's neck. Shut up. Under orders from Repetta, he gave me a double take and stormed over to me and put my own gun to my head. Fool! But you didn't count on the Oceanico Beach cops to see the boat come in from Catalina. So they just left his body there and then tried to cover it up on the fly with Lang. For a dead man, you do a lot of talking. Just what were you picking up on Catalina? Shut up and keep climbing. First, the winds whipped across the top of the building. 
The lights of Morgan City shined across the landscape as Naki pushed me onto the gravel roof. I saw the main roads, even the northern alpine, all the way back out to the cars and trucks zipping along the 5 freeway below the silhouetted mountains beyond. But I was getting precariously close to the edge of the building. He would either have to stab me or shoot me because I wasn't going to just jump onto Rockwell, seven stories below. The contraband, the seahorses, it's just the outer shell, the fake out. You people are so clever. Did Constantini think this one up or did Repetta? You should have minded your own goddamn business. Now I can see Rockwell Ave below. Who assembled the team? Shut up. It all boils down to Chandler, doesn't it? I've had enough of you, crud. You raised the gun. Die at the barrel of your own gun. No one will know the rest. I heard a sharp crack, but it wasn't from the 44. I turned as Naki dropped Beatrice onto the gravel. The knife dropped out of his hand and the phone spun across the roof. A blood circle formed on his silk shirt at the shoulder, and he fell forward. Queenie stood in her blue and gold ram shirt, with the gun still pointed forward. I scooped up the knife and threw it over the edge. Then I kicked the phone off the building. I took Beatrice off the roof and ran toward Queenie. By now, she had lowered the 38. She still stared at Naki, who began to stir. I was impressed with her ingenuity, but as we ran back to the stairs, Naki began to sit up and grabbed his shoulder. Run, Queenie! We raced down the stairs and she directed me to the side door. She opened it and we scampered down the steep stairs. Shoulder wound. He'll survive. I have an Uber out front. Amazing! I yelled, leaping with her down the stairs. At the bottom of the stairs, an indistinct figure set his gun and I grabbed Queenie. We retreated up the stairs as somebody fired a round of shots. I opened the second floor office door and locked it. Then I pushed open the window behind a metal desk. We were only 15 feet from Rockwell Ave. I climbed out first and was able to grip the ledge as someone began crashing against the door. Queenie backed out and I helped her down the ledge. Then I lowered myself onto the first floor ledge and stood. I grabbed her legs and brought her down. When we were on the street, I took her hand and we ran toward the park in the distance. The Uber had left. A few minutes later, near the park entrance, a massive barrage of firepower sounded back at the warehouse. We entered the park and headed south of town. As we exited the park, headlights from two cars shined back into the park. We ran onto a side street and paralleled the main street back into town. We need to get the blueprints and the bills of lading back at the motel. Then I held her shoulders. How did you get into that building, Queenie? I opened the door. You mean to tell me I broke through that window when the door was open? Occam's razor, the simplest way. Chapter 18, 1.45 a.m. I was nestled next to Queenie in the passenger train seat. Her body was warm and a mild perfume lingered. Her blonde hair flowed over my shoulder. Our Amtrak ticket said Chandler, but both of us assumed that Roy and possibly Naki would expect us to show up in Chandler and Inland Acres. We made arrangements with the conductor to disembark the train at Riverside. We found it difficult to sleep even with the dim lighting as the train headed across the Mojave into the rugged land south of Pyramid Lake. According to the map, we would reach Santa Clarita and then trace the western base of the San Gabriels. We would move through Pasadena along the top of the LA Basin to Glendora, Pomona, and over to Riverside by dawn. Sometimes it's better to be awake and active rather than closing your eyes and not sleep. 
Woody was right, Bender would arrest me on sight, which was better than Naki killing both Queenie and me upon our arrival. Getting into an Inland Acres unit to check the walls would not be easy. Had Woody go back to the hotel. Queenie and I would find transportation out of Riverside. As the train rumbled south and we were both awake, I opened the blueprint for the Inland Acres unit. There were hundreds of units at the project. Commodities such as drugs would yield an extraordinary profit. The drugs or something else was hidden inside the seahorse paperweights. Drugs were even more illicit than computer chips. Regardless, they had cleverly put the illicit materials into a trucking system manifest where the true nature of the shipment could easily disappear. It was a ballsy move. Queenie wrapped her arms around my arm. Sam, you really think we're going to figure this out? Probably not until we get on site. We have the police and the bad guys after us, Queen Bee. She didn't answer and fell back asleep on my shoulder. 7.09 a.m. Train tracks came within view of the 91 freeway as we pulled into the Riverside Station just after dawn. The cavalcade of people headed to work, jammed the 91 freeway, and entered the connecting train cars to bring them to L.A. Queenie and I grabbed coffee and donuts and flagged down a conventional taxi to travel south to Chandler. Just after 7 a.m., Queenie put her crew on standby at the station as I nursed the coffee on the 91 freeway. Then we had the driver veer south on the 215. We gained speed against the traffic coming into the city. As soon as we faced the sun, not quite over the mountains, I put on sunglasses and was stunned how the fire had become a smoky morass south of Chandler. The winds brightened the orange flames less than 20 miles away. The driver stopped behind Woody's Motel, which was less than a mile from the entrance to Inland Acres. The wind whipped the lingering smoky haze as we stepped out of the taxi. We walked into the five-story motel just off the freeway. The clerk told us the police had begun voluntary evacuations over an hour ago, just after six o'clock. Then I asked for a Woodrow Terrell. With a trash bag under my arm, we were directed to the restaurant near the indoor pool to wait for Woody. There were a dozen people talking about evacuations if the wind changed direction. Queenie pulled me toward the indoor waterfall and garden. I want a camera crew out here, Sam. If your theory about the shells and the wall is correct, then all hell will break loose. These people will kill Queenie, you know that. Well, think of Lucy. I pressed my lips and nodded. I may call the FBI once I find what Naki and company have stashed in the walls. We regroup if there's nothing there. I need to be sure. It's a matter of smashing the sheetrock, providing they don't smash you first if we only knew what they'd been transporting. I shook my head. I'll find out. Then let's do this. I'll get a crew out here. I'll station them in Chandler. We'll be ready to cover this thing once you get answers, Sam. I'll wait to hear from you. I extended my hand. Deal. You have the heads up before the FBI, I think. We stood and she hugged me. I have one request of you, Sam, cried. Yes, stay alive. I held her shoulders. I have no intention of dying. However, I knew that wanting to stay alive does not mean that you would stay alive. Then she smiled. Good. I don't want to go to Capistrano alone. Ten minutes later, Woody brought us to the roof where he said he could get a better view of Inland Acres. The wind was already fierce and the smoke had all the characteristics of looking through a dirty window. Through the morass, we observed Naki, now in town, Addie and Roy, surveying the fire from the barn atop the hill at the far end of the project. They're worried, said Woody. If your theory is right, Sam, and the walls contain contraband, 
They'll lose everything if the fire heads not. Some of the homeowners are already leaving, said Queenie. There's a cop car going through the project. And the money they put into this project, probably in the millions, I said, will be gone if that fire hits the houses. What do you think the plan is, asked Queenie. They want to get whatever is out here. That means ripping apart walls, said Woody. With what it's worth, ripped walls mean nothing, Woodrow, I said. The three men met Kelly Lang in front of the clubhouse. They conferred for a short time, then all three entered the building. I moved the binoculars toward the plume rising to the blue Southern California sky. The air above was so clear, but along the ground the smoke spread like the angel of death in every valley and canyon. Up near the barn I saw what appeared to be the front end of that white truck I had seen in Morgan City. Woody, I said, giving him the binoculars, check out that truck near the barn. Could be the stuff from Morgan City, or maybe they use it for the project. I saw that truck in Morgan City. I pointed to the area between the hill and the clubhouse, maybe half a mile away. All the new construction had ceased. The frames were half completed and the trucks and front end loaders had left the site. Why would they be shutting down the site? Maybe they're planning something, said Woody. <laughs> More of their magic goodies in the wall, added Queenie. Of course, I said, squeezing Queenie's hand. They can't take a chance someone from construction sees the dirty deed. What do you want us to do, Sam? If we're going in there, Woodrow, we'd have to do it late afternoon or into night. We would have some cover. Queenie gestured with her hand over the property. That smoke is good cover. No kidding. It's not a good sign that the cops are getting people out of here. Could be just a precaution, said Queenie. Do you guys think that fire will head up here? I asked. Woody shook his head. You know Southern California fire, Sam. Depends on the damn wind. He's right, said Queenie. I would say Naki and the gang are a little concerned. That's why the white truck is important. If they have to start opening up walls, they're going to have to haul that stuff out of here. Let's clean up and get some sleep and then get there in late afternoon. My crew is still on standby in Chandler, Sam. Can't broadcast this, nor can I call Marty until I'm sure that something is stashed in those connecting boards next to the fireplaces. I won't tell them until you give me the go-ahead. Queenie, you're one in a million. And you, Sam Crud, are full of don't say it. I said, smiling as we headed for the stairs. You know what the answer is, said Woody. Yeah, you ought to know, Woody. You're right there with me. 3.37 p.m. The green Audi was still parked several hundred yards from the clubhouse. I nodded at Woody. Woody and I moved on foot in the windy haze along the outside of the white rail fence. I looked across dozens of houses, townhouses, and condos extending into the smoke. Over 700 units. They must have originally sent Lang over to Oceanico Beach after they dumped Compton's body, said Woody. The plan was to bury Al Compton in the ditch up at the barn. Then all hell breaks loose when the Beach Boys dumped the body on the deck because of the night patrol. They sent Lang over because they needed to know the dead man was Al Compton so those guys could steal the body. But they couldn't get at it and the body ended up in Cornford's lab. I think Repetta ordered all of this. Compton's body on the skiff ruined everything. Right. You started all this, Woody. Hey. Woody gazed through a pair of binoculars. Damn smoke, you can't even see things at a distance. That may help us get into one of these units without being seen. People are leaving because of the smoke, said Woody, panning the binoculars. 
That's where we'll enter one of the units, I said. Break up the walls in somebody's residence? Asked Woody. Jeez. I grabbed the binoculars from Woody. Look, Woody, if we're going to find this stuff, that's what we'll have to do. I know, I know. I stood and motioned him along the fence. It would be difficult for anyone in the clubhouse to see us as we followed the white rail fence along the perimeter. When we were about 50 yards past the clubhouse, two people ahead loaded suitcases into an SUV. 4.03 p.m. Let's just wait until they pass the gates. You really think we'll find something, Sam? I watched the SUV back into the street. I don't know. If we do, I'll call Marty. You know, if they're doing what you say they're doing, it's ingenious because they're gutted into a system of bills of ladings and delivery. That's right. We're on, Woody, I said, looking down toward the clubhouse. Once the SUV was off the property, we crossed the main road and marched directly up the concrete driveway. Woody performed a maneuver, a maneuver I could never duplicate, and when I tried, I'd always bust up my foot. Woody kicked the base of the door while thrusting the butt of his hand near the center. It worked every time. 5.30 p.m. The door slowly opened. Maybe that was part of the maneuver, too. I shut the door behind us. We walked into a thick carpeted home. I removed the sketch I had made from the blueprint. Over here, Woody, near the fireplace, to the right. I knocked on the wall and found the studs. I extended my hand and Woody, with four quick jabs, produced a chunk of sheetrock he pulled out of the wall. Indeed, the area was framed just as the blueprint had indicated, but nothing was on the horizontal 2x6. Woody turned to me. Now what, Sam? We can't just destroy these houses. Why not? We're already in deep doo-doo. Woody and I stared at each other for almost ten seconds. Then we both shrugged our shoulders. Next house, Woody. Let's go. As I closed the door, I was still amazed that Woody's door maneuver hadn't destroyed the door. There was no evidence the door had been pried open with Woody's foot. What's the matter, Sam? We ran within the smoke-laden air across the lawn. How do you open those doors when it's locked? The old one-two, pressure points, said Woody as we looked inside the next house. When no one was inside, Woody stepped left and did the old one-two. We strolled into a duplicate house with different furniture. Where'd you learn how to do that? Sam, it's a secret. Come on, Woody. Boris Bungalow in Vegas. He was on stage after me. That's all I'll say. I found the studs and we both smashed the wall this time. Empty. Maybe the theory is wrong, said Woody. Could be, I said as I thought. What I have wrong is the logistics. Why not put it in units not sold? That makes sense. I looked at the undamaged door again. Unbelievable. For the first time I coughed from being in the smoke. We moved on to one of the side roads that led to the new construction, just barely visible in the distance. The mountains were now shaded by the gray haze. In the cul-de-sac to the left were six new but unoccupied houses. Each front door had an exterior lock over the doorknob. Locked, I said, but Woody stepped toward the window. He hit the lower sash top with his elbow and then caught the upper right and lower portions of the frame. The center lock popped. Are you kidding me? Boris used to say if crooks knew this secret, no one would be safe. I just shook my head as Woody squirmed inside and met me at the front door. Then my cell phone rang. Sam, said Queenie. We're searching, Queenie. We're in a new section. You may not have a lot of time. Cops just started an evacuation of the complex. The fire trucks are at the front gate. Okay, we'll pick up the pace. I'm going to do a report on the fire from the gate. Do it. 
As I turned, Woody stood with two large seahorse paperweights, duplicates to what I had seen in the second office in Morgan City. Open it, Sam? asked Woody. Yeah, but be careful. I said, studying Woody's destruction along the fireplace. We don't know what's inside. Woody saluted and removed a jackknife from his pocket. Less than a minute later, he popped the head off the seahorse. A clear plastic bag fell to the counter, emptying the white crystallized fentanyl across the counter. There's four other containers in there, Sam. Do you know how much this is worth? A lot. 6.45 p.m. From the open door, the armadied Naki, his tool of choice, the stiletto, firmly in his hand, spoke in his distinctive voice. His shoulder was encased in a tan wrapper bandage and his arm in a sling. It's, it's worth millions. Naki, I said in a raspy voice. You're amazing, crud. I know you have that pearl-handled gun on you. Both of you, drop your weapons. How was your plane ride? I asked angrily, placing Beatrice on the floor. The bushy-haired Addy, wearing a striped shirt, stepped inside. He picked up Woody's revolver and then lifted Beatrice off the floor. Naki pulled Beatrice from Addy. Who shot me, crud? I don't know. We'll see about that. You're a son of a bitch, crud, said Addy. How are you not killed? I have nine lives, you murderer. You made millions, or should I say Constantini made millions. And all you have to do is open up the wall when you're ready to make a deal. For a smart guy, you're pretty stupid, said Naki. Then he looked at Woody, still at the counter. Set down the bag, dummy. Woody set the bag on the counter, but I had just speed dialed Queenie. The call connected. I started laughing to distract Naki and let Queenie know what I was doing. Ha <laughs> I'm wondering when we're going to die, Naki. You think this is funny, cried. I'm not just going to kill you. I'm going to pull out your eyeballs. You do know they're evacuating this place, Naki, I said, repeating his name. You think we're in here for our health? yelled Naki. I pointed at them both. The fire will sweep in and destroy millions of dollars worth of fentanyl. Fentanyl? That's bullshit. Shut your mouth. The fire is ten miles to the south, cried Addy. Oh, that right, I asked. All it takes is a sudden shift to the Santa Ana, and this place and all your fentanyl goes up in smoke, Naki. Shut up. It won't happen, said Addy. He lifted his phone and waited. Roy, we're in Unit 462. Call Repetta. We need to get out of here until the fire is over. Repetta, I repeated loudly. Bring Crud and his dupest friend to the barn and kill them. Again, what are you going to do when the winds shift, Addy? You'll lose all your precious fentanyl. They already know about Repetta, I lied. Addy raised his brows and Naki was on the phone again. Give me Special Agent Holland. I opened my eyes wide and slowly turned to Woody. Sure, Holland from the FBI is in on this. Shut up, shouted Naki as he stomped toward the counter. Addy waved Woody's gun. Over there, crud. Holland is a scumbag, just like you, Naki. Woody shouted in a voice so loud that Naki took a swing at him and missed. Bill, we have crud and some flunky. We'll kill them and throw them in the fire. Does, does anyone know about Repetta? I didn't think so. And keep the cops out of here. You're a liar, crud, said Naki, pointing at me as he left. He scrambled into the hall. The upshot was that Holland would keep Marty away. And Woody and I were about to get wasted, possibly by Beatrice. I didn't like Holland from the first time I met him above the canyon off the Ventura Freeway, but I never thought he'd compromise his position with these lowlifes. 
Luckily, that night Danny had been transported to the hospital before Holland arrived in the canyon. How much did you pay off Holland? I yelled at Addie. I told you to shut up. So the FBI could just look the other way. Addie stepped toward Naki. Naki, what do we do if this fire shifts north? We need to move the bags out of the project just in case the fire reaches the complex. You let me handle this, Addie. I heard squeaking brakes out in front in the smoky morass. A few seconds later, Roy, wearing a tight, multicolored sports shirt, materialized like a spirit in the fog. His biceps were huge and his chest remarkable. When he saw me, he studied me with his eyes like a predator, knowing he had his prey cornered. You attacked me with those pipes, you son of a bitch! Yeah, so what, Roy? You were running drugs out of Catalina in Morgan City, and probably Mexico before that, you bastard. Give me the gun, Addie. Give me the gun. Addie handed Beatrice to Roy. Roy was surprised at Beatrice's weight. I wouldn't do anything without Repetta's permission, Roy, I said. Roy's head snapped to the right. How does he know about Repetta? Who cares? asked Addie. They're being taken out. Roy nodded. You two are going up the hill for a walk and you ain't coming back. Think we're going to walk into that barn, you're crazy. Roy pivoted and cold cocked me before I could move. The next thing I knew, I was looking up at the ceiling. My jaw was swollen right away. Get me the junk. These two bozos are going to have an opioid overdose. That's when Woody's face tightened and he let out something akin to a rebel yell. The confused Roy did a double take. Then Woody did the one-two against Roy's lower legs and then his ribs. Unlike the door that just opened easily, Roy wailed in pain and buckled over, dropping Beatrice. I reached over and scooped up the gun. Addie lowered the seahorse and was about to fire the gun when Woody made a series of grunting noises that sounded like the Amazon jungle, culminating in a direct hit to the crotch. Addie's pain equally matched Roy's calamity. Woody grabbed the revolver out of Addie's hand. Thanks, sucker. Naki off the phone appeared in the hall. What the hell? He produced the switchblade. Drop it, I yelled as I stood upright. Naki stared at us and then laughed. If you had any balls, you'd kill us. If you had any character, you'd go to hell. Woody and I backed out into the wind. He shut the door and kicked the knob. We ran into the smoky air, covering our mouths. What the hell did you do, Woody? You'll never get out, at least through that door. We trekked over several streets and up a small knoll where the road swept upward, but I couldn't see the wood barn. We both began coughing. Queenie! Queenie! I said into the phone, but the line was disconnected. Did she hear what happened? Asked Woody. I don't know. I said reconnecting, but the line kept ringing. 8.32 p.m. Woody followed me up to a house in the corner of another cul-de-sac. I didn't worry about entering the house and figured we could see Naki and the others once they got out of the fentanyl house. We would know if they decided to proceed up the hill. The inside of this house was clean with minimal furniture and a small TV monitor. We brought the thick smoke inside with us. I tried Queenie's phone again. Thought the cops coming in, Sam, we could be defenseless. And that scumbag Howland will send his guys after us. Outside, Roy's beat-up pickup moved through the haze. Oh, here comes Roy the boy, said Woody. That was one hell of a combination of punches, Woody. I was told Roy killed Al Compton. I leaned forward. Addie is in that truck. The truck moved by the corner house and started up the hill toward the barn. We have to kill them, Sam. I'm calling Marty about Holland. 
but when I punched in his number, the line kept ringing into Marty's voicemail. Sergeant Nick Martin, voicemail. Voicemail beeped. Marty, Woody and I are inside Inland Acres. There are tons of fentanyl inside the walls next to the fireplace. We escaped Roy, Naki, and Addie. Howland from the FBI is in the middle of this operation. Call me right away. Do not contact Bill Howland. I looked at the phone and then ended the call. He doesn't know your number on that phone. No, he doesn't. We can try my phone. I left an identical message with Woody's phone. I hope the hell he gets these messages. Look, we need to backtrack to the gates. Where the hell is Naki? Asked Woody, looking around. Searching for us like Roy and Addie. I said, looking out the side window. I could see a massive orange glow to the south as the late afternoon sun mixed with the haze. Then Woody turned on the TV in the kitchenette. He flipped his Z-75, but Queenie and her report from the gate was not on the channel. She said she was going on the air, right? Something isn't right, Woody. Look at the glow. The damn fire is closer than I said. Let's just get back to the gates. Maybe the fire and the forestry personnel had moved Queenie and her crew away from the gates. We were both coughing again. But why wasn't she answering her phone? The air seemed thicker with smoke with the daylight dimming. Over my left shoulder, I saw a threatening orange luminescence. Both of us held our guns as we trekked across the lawns. With the impending darkness and the dense smoke, we were just not sure of where we were inside the complex. My throat felt as if it had been sandblasted. 9.22 p.m. Damn that smoke, I said as Woody got us inside a house at the far end of the cul-de-sac. <coughs> I turned on the kitchen lights and splashed water on my face. Woody took out his cell and after a few minutes, he brought up a map of Inland Acres. What road is this? Eaton Place. We're way the hell down the other end, Sam. Woody looked up. I say we stay in here for a while. We go out there and we'll never get out of this maze with an approaching wildfire. I braced myself against the counter and tried Queenie's phone again. When she didn't answer, I leaned against the wall and closed my eyes. Fatigue overcame me and I dozed off several times until my phone rang. Queenie's cash phone number came on the screen. I put the phone on speaker. 10.15 p.m. Queenie! No, Naki. His voice was low and mean. I could sense he was moving. You meet us at the barn at the top of the hill. You meet us, Carter. She's dead. I waited several seconds as I tried to digest how this had happened. Listen, Naki, she's done nothing wrong. You're going to lose all this, Naki. Your investment. Let her go. Where are you? Asked Naki. Put her on the phone. I heard Naki tell Queenie to speak, and then Queenie's voice vibrated through the speaker. Sam, he has me hostage. The phone was jostled. There, crud. Meet us at the barn in no more than 15 minutes. Queenie coughed, and Naki hung up. I don't trust that bastard as far as I can throw him, said Woody. They're definitely on the way to the barn. What choice do we have? I asked, looking at Woody. Then it came to me. Call him, Woody. With this unit's number, can you do Addie's voice? Sure, that one's easy, said Woody, producing Addie's raspy voice. I called out the number from the landline phone. Woody pushed several buttons on the phone. What do you want me to say? Just do Addie and Roy's voice. Woody nodded. Get Naki over to this unit. 10.35 p.m. Woody waited and then began his shtick when Naki answered the phone. Naki, it's Addie, said Woody. We need you at 16 Eaton Place. What? Why? All I 
combined with a reporter to kill Crud, said Naki. I knew it, I whispered. You can wait. I'm bringing the girl up the hill as per our last call. Then Woody mimicked Roy. You get her over here, you deal with me. Naki laughed. Bring it on. Crud is on his way to the barn, idiot. Get up here and kill him and his goofball friend. Woody's face tightened. No, Crud is on his way here, Naki. He called Addy two minutes ago. That's impossible. Just bring her over here and we'll take out Crud. This is insane. Yelled Naki as he hung up. Woody turned to me. I'm not sure he'll come over here. He'll be here. We'll leave all the lights on and we'll go across the street so we can get Queenie safely back. Let's just hope he doesn't call Addy or Roy. Chapter 19, 10.50 p.m. From Unit 629, we positioned ourselves in front of the corner windows. I didn't see Naki, but, but through the murky evening light, an array of outside fuzzy halogens lit the top of the hill to my right. Damn him, I shouted. We have to go up there, Woody. This could get hairy. Wait, Sam, said Woody, sweeping his arm toward me. To the left, I saw a silhouetted figure in the smoke. Then Naki, holding Queenie around the neck, passed by us. Now I realized Naki was planning on going to the barn. And indeed, he veered toward the hill. Woody and I ran across the room. If he didn't call Addie, he'll know soon enough Addie didn't make that call. Naki will swear he never heard Addie. We'll go up the side of the hill in the darkness, away from the halogens, and up the dirt road, Woody. Double time, in silence. All the way along the rim of the hill, Naki and Queenie were at least 25 feet away from the bright halogens. The fire, now an advancing inferno not that far away, was bright enough to produce an orange tint across our clothing. Unfortunately, Naki was still ahead of us and would make it to the barn before we reached the top. He disappeared around the corner, but an immediate argument broke out inside the barn. You called me, Addy, yelled Naki. Bullshit, I did. And you're done, Roy, said Naki. Put your knife away, fool. I never talked to you. You said you were at Eaton Place and the lights were on. I saw the lights were on. You were duped. Still in the dark, we reached an area below the barn. The white cube truck was parked alongside. We drew our guns. I nodded at Woody. When we rounded the corner, Naki's eyes opened wide. Queenie slipped away. Weapons down or you're dead. All three men dropped their guns. Who called me? asked Naki. And your switchblade, Naki, on the ground, I said as Woody picked up the guns and the blade. Don't be a fool, Crud. We can make you rich. Fentanyl rich? I asked. Come work for us, said Addy. Why are you up here? To get the excess bags out of here in the truck, said Naki. I thought about being in this very barn and not checking that ditch. That's not going to happen. I'm calling the cops and you're going back to the clubhouse. Naki laughed. Ha! Law enforcement is on our side, dude. You call them and you're a dead man. Not going to happen that way. You have no idea what you're up against, said Naki. Bill Howland will be arrested, I said. You're bluffing. Hands, fingers clasped on your head, I yelled. We'll see how much I'm bluffing. All three men complied. You're a fool, cried said Naki. March down the road to the asphalt and then back to the clubhouse. Cops will arrest you. Liar, said Naki. I didn't see any cops. Let's go. 
Queenie and Woody joined me as we filed toward the open barn door. To the left, the fiery glow lit the night ahead of us. No one said anything as we descended the hill. Headlights shined forward in the distance near the gates as a vehicle raced past the clubhouse entrance. I moved closer to Naki and kept Beatrice drawn. It was clear that vehicle was headed in our direction. Everyone, down the hill. What? shouted Naki. Move it! The cherry-colored SUV slid across the dirty road, spraying the dirt. Two men, one a balding man behind the wheel and a dark-haired guy on the passenger side, leaped out on one knee and started firing. Everyone dove to the dirt and bullets pinged the ground. Then I fired back, hitting the passenger side door. Woody fired three times, sending the driver back inside the SUV. He backed up the vehicle and shined the headlights on us. We shot out the lights, but Naki and the others had run into the darkness down the side of the hill. In the SUV, both men exited the vehicle and now brandished AR-47 rifles. Drop your guns! We placed our weapons on the dirt. Naki and the others ran up the road. Naki said something to the dark-haired man, who nodded and swung his rifle back toward us. All of you, back in the barn! Repetta wants the truck loaded. Constantini's men, I said as the balding guy scooped up our weapons. I took Queenie's hand and started up the hill. Steve, what about the houses? Asked the bald guy. One thing at a time, Craig. He looked over his shoulder. I see that fire just like you do. We're not going to take the chance, yelled Naki. We're getting the drugs out of the unit once Roy drives the cube truck out of here. I represent Mr. Constantini as well as Repetta. You will do what I say, Naki. Then we joined Roy and Addie on the dirt road, back to the barn. Roy headed toward the cube truck and started the huge diesel engine. He drove out in front and backed the truck to the barn. 11.22 p.m. We were forced to our knees by the chipped rocks. I squeezed one of the rocks in my hand. Oddly, the rock had no hard surface and was spongy. As Steve and Naki positioned the cube truck with Roy driving, I peeled back several layers of a soft gray plastic. At the core of these chip rocks was a tawny square computer chip with metal side connectors like the fine flagella on a cell. I looked at Woody as we were ordered to our feet by Steve. Addie held Beatrice, pointed at us as the other Constantini man, Craig, now brandished an automatic weapon. I was even more stunned when Roy moved the bottom concrete panels in the ditch. Blue plastic bags of fentanyl were mixed with the clear bags. The number of fentanyl bags in the hole was staggering. We were all forced into a human chain and moved the fentanyl bag by bag into the open truck. Steve told us to be careful of the thin plastic. As Steve and Craig stood along the wall with their rifles, I continuously looked for a way out of the situation. I passed each bag to Woody, who gave it to Addie and then Naki in the truck. When I saw Lang walk in in jeans and stiletto heels, my temper erupted. There she is, Megan Stoller. She stopped, and her eyes were open wide. You killed my friend Lucy, you scum. She looked directly at Naki. Shut your mouth, cried, said Naki. No, you shut your mouth. You just take out people, you and Addie and the rest of you bastards. Woody held me back as Lang handed a large notebook to Naki. Naki began checking the number of bags that had been placed in the truck. Then Lang, without looking at me, strutted out of the barn, and we just kept loading the bags into the truck. After midnight, Roy walked back in the building, and we all rested. Fires across the north fence, said Roy to Naki. Naki quickly moved toward the front of the building. The orange flames reflected off his blue shirt. Then he shook his head. He's right. Steve and Craig looked through the wood slats. 
15 minutes, and then we drive the truck back to Morgan City. They're on to you, Steve. You haven't got a prayer. It won't matter to you, crud. You'll be dead and buried in this hole. The fire engines near the gates cast a series of red and blue lights across the front entrance to the barn. Other fire engines south of town, lights in the haze, sent huge jets of water onto multiple houses. For another 15 minutes, we passed the final few bags to the edge of the truck. By now, the fire had devoured the field and shrubs were burning behind the first row of houses. Addie and Naki closed the rear of the truck and locked the latch. This unit is going to 612 Speed Lane, Morgan City. Naki looked around the barn. The truck's diesel engine rattled and started. Someone shifted the truck forward and Naki ran outside with Steve as Craig kept his weapon trained on us. Both men began shooting at the truck cab window as the truck gained speed. Naki ran ahead of Steve and shot the driver's side tire. Roy opened the door as the truck lurched to the left. He fired his gun wildly. Steve was knocked to the ground and wasn't moving. Naki then plugged Roy off the truck, and Roy rolled lifeless down the hill toward the fire. But the truck, tire thumping, kept moving down the hill. Naki stopped 50 yards behind the fast-moving truck. The truck bounced and slid on its side into the fire. The fentanyl bags were flung into the flames. Only seconds later, a massive explosion now added fuel and flames to the wildfire. Naki backtracked up the hill. He picked up Steve's gun with his good hand. I was now fearful for our lives as he headed toward the barn. Addie fled the scene. Hands on your head, shouted Naki like a wild man. Face the ditch! I knew what he meant, and I didn't know how we could get out of the barn. Queenie stood with her eyes closed. Fear covered her face, and Woody just stared ahead. Craig, lifting up his rifle, sidestepped next to Naki. As I prepared to die, I held Queenie's hand, I heard a scamper on my side. Then Dad's back truck from one of his rigs exploded through the barn board, sending splendid wood around the barn. Naki turned his buster and leaped out of the truck like a horse out of the gate. Geronimo! I screeched. Buster raced toward Naki and Bad circled to the right. Craig aimed his rifle toward the oncoming Buster. Bad fired his handgun three times at Craig, knocking him dead against the barn board. Buster, like a bird of prey, became airborne and began ripping Naki's arm and scratching his ribs and stomach with his paws. He ripped the bandage apart. His growling echoed around the barn. The rifle fell out of Naki's hands as Buster tore apart his neck. Naki lurched and gyrated and fell backward. Halt! He flipped over, face down, and hit the remaining fentanyl bags, splitting them apart. His face was buried deep within the exposed fentanyl, and he wasn't moving. Buster sat up straight and looked at me. I bent down and hugged him. Good boy, Buster. Good boy. Hey, what about me? asked Bad. I ain't hugging you, Bad. Put my hand on his shoulder. Thanks. I felt Queenie's arms around me. Sam, said Bad. Muck's pickup is at the entrance to the service road, out back. We followed him and he brought us around because of the fire. I told him to stay in the truck. Okay, you guys follow Muck back to the clubhouse. Good, because that fire is burning this whole place down, said Bad. As Bad climbed into his truck, I noticed Addie was gone. Bad started the loud engine as Queenie, Woody, and I hurried through the open barn door. The fire had spread over the first cul-de-sac and other houses burned as the fire engine lights pulsed through the smoke. But the firemen couldn't keep up with the mighty fire. We ran to Muck's white pickup at the entrance to the dirt service road. 
Queenie and I climbed in with Buster in the back seat while Woody got in front. Hey, where you been? asked Muck with his dry humor. Get us out of here, Mucklestein. The massive fireball, consuming the homes of Inland Acres, looked as if a small nuclear device had been detonated in the Santa Ana wind. Flames stretched like fire fingers into the dark, twisting and turning within the swirling drafts. Marty had arrived on the scene and set a ring of police around the Inland Acres entrance. Badge truck was parked out in back of a dozen fire trucks, some flashing their emergency lights through the smoke and onto the clubhouse. A huge police trailer was parked away from the entrance. I didn't see Bender and no FBI personnel were on site. Someone pointed at us in Muck's white pickup, rumbling down the dirt service road. Marty, his tie loose and his sleeves rolled up, wore a dark hat with P-O-L-I-C-E in white letters. He motioned to several of his special ops guys with their helmets, bulletproof vests, and rifles, ran with him toward us. They surrounded the truck. Out of the truck, Sam. What the hell's going on here? Yelled Marty, directing the question toward me. I like your hat, Marty. As if we don't know you're a cop. This whole place is going up in smoke. Why were you up that road, Sam? He looked at Queenie by my side as I got out of the truck. You better get in those units and take the fentanyl out of the walls next to the fireplace, if you can. Well, that's what you said in your message. We located the seahorse statues or paperweights in the wall, Marty. Listen, we're on top of this. We just arrested Becky Langan and Maria Rapetta, a.k.a. Megan Stoller's sister. They're trying to get out of here with those fentanyl statues. Maria? Maria Rapetta? I asked. She's running this operation? Cousin to Constantini. Marty wiped his forehead. Posing as Stoller's sister, let her get a handle on the situation after Compton's murder. She pretended to be Al Compton's wife up in Morgan City, I said. Did you arrest Howland? I'm not arresting an FBI supervisor, <coughs> said Marty, coughing in the smoke. Gotta lay off the cigarettes, Marty. It's the smoke, damn it. Well, Howland was deep in this operation, I said. Where is Repetta? In the trailer, said Marty. She's being guarded by three of my guys. Then bring me over to the trailer window. No! You know, I'm still going to have to bring you in as per Bender's orders. Then he wiped his mouth. He glanced toward the trailer. Ten seconds, you can look in the window. I put my arm around Queenie. With four cops, we all crossed the smoky night over to the glowing trailer. Lang was on the couch. I saw the olive-skinned dour repetter. Megan stole his fake sister, who earlier had pretended to be the late Elsa Compton. Her hair was grayer from the side and she wore a simple white t-shirt. Her profile was sharp. She just stared at the filing cabinets, probably wondering how such a well-planned and coordinated operation could have fallen apart so quickly and so thoroughly. Two of Marty's detectives ran over from the entrance. Some type of commotion was taking place beyond the gatehouse. Sergeant, we have another one of the operatives. The operatives from Inland Acres. Addie, I said. If you would just listen to us, Marty, he has my gun. Don't worry about the gun, Sam, said Marty, gesturing to Queenie and Muck. Bring them all back to Oceanico Beach with Byron. Contact Bender and begin questioning. Marty, there are men from Constantini's organization dead in the barn at the top of the hill. Marty soon looked as if he had indigestion. Naki and his cohort, Steve and Craig, are dead. 
A truck filled with fentanyl with Roy aboard blew up below the hill. You gotta be kidding me. No. Hold it, called Marty and the detective stopped. What the hell did you do up there, Sam? I want a full statement from everyone. You might want to call Harry, Sam. I don't need Harry. This operation was well planned. I'm sure Repetta will plead the fifth. The fentanyl was sent to Mexico from somewhere, maybe China. Ask Abby, he knows. Then to Catalina, dropped by Roy in a parachute. Then they shipped it all to Morgan City, to Rio Martos, and out here. You need to go to the top of the hill, Marty. Look, Sam, there's a pile of rocks there that contain computer chips. You best get up there, Marty, or Bender will have your ass. Trust me. Trust you? You're the last person. He figured it out, Marty, said Queenie. All right, all right, get in the truck. We'll follow you. He stepped closer to one of his huge special ops guys. JB, get your guys in the camera, he said to his men. The rest of you, keep this gate secure. Bring Addy with you, Marty. Marty nodded. This road leads to the barn? Yeah. Marty's cell phone rang. Yeah. You confronted him, Nob? You're kidding. Yeah. Call San Diego, right. What happened, Marty? I asked from the truck window. The highway patrol have Holland. He wants a lawyer and treasury agents are on the way to Pasadena. Holland refuses to talk. I thought you said that... I said I wouldn't arrest him. Marty turned toward me and rubbed his chin. I'm sorry, Sam. Sorry about all of this. We just didn't have all the information. Sometimes, Marty, you just need enough information. After Harry helped us with all our statements in the morning, I happily spent the next few days away from the case, working with the Colonel and Shorty, installing the rest of the electronic locks and surveillance cameras in the Parisio Oceanico. I took phone calls from Marty. The time also had allowed me to catch up on my lack of sleep. Queenie told me she did the same. KC-75 management, after meeting with Queenie, agreed to begin a white paper expose on the entire fentanyl and computer chip operation. As for me, I not only visited Lucy's grave in Hawthorne, but I made a trip with Woody to Morgan City and Al Compton's grave. I paid for both headstones. Al Compton was no saint, but he didn't deserve to be murdered. I met alone with Danny, who had recovered enough to walk the grounds of the hospital with me. He would be testifying to the limited knowledge he had of Holland's deliberate slowing of the investigation and possible payoffs. It was a warm October evening, with the soothing orange sun hovering over the blue Pacific and a salty freshness in the air. Queenie and I walked hand in hand along the sand as the waves gently broke toward shore. We had just left everyone in the med and wandered south from Oceanico Beach. Today the wind was inconsequential and I finally had an expanding feeling of peace. We got the video of Inland, Sam. Flattened. It's still smoldering. DEA agents are combing the place for the remaining fentanyl. How's Danny? Danny's up and walking. Howland is behind bars facing trial. Addy is singing and Constantini will remain in jail for the rest of his life. Maybe Repetta will move in next to him. I laughed. No, she's in the federal prison up in Utah. That man Susie, the bar owner, is he the one that's plea bargaining? Asked Queenie. That's what Marty says. I can't believe this is really over soon. Marty's calling it the seahorse case. Bend is giving him an award, according to Shirley. 
I gave her some vacation time, and they'll present the award to Marty next month. I like Marty, but Bender and Holland prevented him from doing his job, Sam. Holland had a vested interest, and Bender is a fool with his excellence award. How could you afford to do all this, my private investigator friend? I paused before I spoke. Harbinger. Why would Harbinger pay you? Because Mr. Harbinger sometimes lives vicariously through me in his motion pictures. He has a keen sense of right and wrong, and he likes me. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of that going around lately. Queenie looked up at me. I've never been under fire, nor have I ever thought I was going to die. Welcome to my world. She smiled and locked her arm around mine. I'm not complaining, but I want Buster to get the award. He did take Naki out, I said. Dogs remember, I think Naki was the one who kicked Buster. Nobody kicks the dog. I like you, Sam, she said, and we stopped. I like you, too. I turned and held her shoulders. I kissed her as the twilight sun lingered in the west. Her green eyes sparkled in the tinted light. But it wasn't just the light. She looked incredibly happy. With our arms locked around each other, we kept walking south as the sun set. For a few minutes, I thought we'd have to call Woody to get us back to Oceanico Beach. In the twilight, I saw the sign in the beach sand along the barrier, Capistrano Beach. Woody will have to come down and pick us up. I would say, my dear Sam, she said, putting her arms around me, Woody will be spending the evening on Surf Drive. With her messed up blonde hair, Queenie smiled again in the diminishing light. I'm taking a few days off. And she leaped into my arms and kissed me. I say, Sammy, like the swallows, we've returned to Capistrano. Thank you for listening to Sam Crud, The Santa Ana Wind by Robert P. Fitton. More Sam Crud novels are in the works. Next week, we are traveling back in time to the 1920s in Once in a Lifetime, a novel that takes place within the events of 1927, such as Babe Ruth's 60 Home Runs, Lindbergh's Flight Across the Atlantic, and the Dempsey-Tunney Fight. Join Jamal and Charlie as they race to signal a distant star in downtown Manhattan while being threatened by bioenergy beings from millenniums hence. I'm Robert P. Fitton, and I'm boarding the plane at Avalon Airport on a very special route to New York, New York, in the year 1927. Happy trails to you. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.